Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Michael Spence, who is a Nobel laureate, an economics professor, and uh, co-chairman of INET's Commission on Global Economic Transformation. And at one time, he was the head of the Independent Commission on Growth and Development, I believe it was a senator in and around the World Bank. He's explored what I will call the dynamic and transitional global issues probably more deeply than anybody that I know. So, uh, Mike, uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of running down the tracks, and in my mind I keep hearing Paul McCartney singing, Yesterday all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Well, we're not here for yesterday. We're here for tomorrow. But there is a lot of uh, unsettled senses. Uh, it feels like the era of low inflation, the era of low interest rates, the era of what you might call galloping growth stocks is all in question, not to mention the existence of peace on earth. So uh, I don't quite know how we uh, how do you, we paint the picture, but I've read a wonderful piece that you put in Project Syndicate recently on the vision that you have for now from the framework and perspective of that famous Nobel laureate, Princeton professor. I, I know you went to Princeton as an undergraduate, uh, W. Arthur Lewis and his perspective on growth. So let's start. Let's start there. <clears throat> how are you seeing? How do you say order within the chaos? A new order, a different order. But as we're watching all the anxiety, confusion in the media, confusion in discourse, uh, aging populations, technological revolutions. Let Let's start with Arthur Lewis. What? Where are we? And where are we going? From the lens of Mike Spence using Arthur Lewis as a guide. Well, well, let me say, Rob, you're, it's a pleasure to be with you again, and um, and you're absolutely right. You know, this is a, a you know, it feels like a very chaotic world. Um, a, a lot of shocks are being delivered. The, the latest one, the the war in in the Ukraine, and the and and you know, I, the way I think about it, there's a sort of underlying secular trends. But the noise to signal ratio is pretty high, um, and it's very difficult, you know, to kind of keep one's focus on these, you know, powerful underlying sort of secular trends that uh, that are going on. So, you know, we'll probably come to some of them, but you know, one of the top ones on my list of five or so is the kind of transformation over the post-war period of the global economy. So you have. Um, the rise of the emerging economies, you know, as little as 25 or 30 years ago, the majority of the world's population lived in countries that by per capita income were class, classified as poor. Um, now the majority of people, not all, but the vast majority, um, are middle class people living in countries that are classed as middle income. Uh, and that has produced an enormous surge in the size of the global economy, their purchasing power, and their sort of economic power. Uh, in general. Um, at the same time, well, you know, and in parallel, meaning it was the same process, it, we've spent a lot of decades in the post-war period bringing what I call sort of underutilized productive capacity online by virtue of the developing uh, world's, you know, entry into the global economy and growth. And which brings me to W. Arthur Lewis, Sir W. Arthur Lewis, who's a, uh, you know, uh, I think a brilliant uh, scholar, 
Um, and he was focused on the developing country growth model. And basically what he said is that, that for non-resource rich countries, the, the way the growth model works is you have a lot of labor in traditional sectors that is underutilized, excess labor, uh, underemployed labor. There were a lot of different terms for it. And when the growth process starts, then a new sector develops. This is structural change, which is usually called the export sector. And the comparative advantage that uh, once you connect with the global economy is in, you know, low-cost, uh, labor-intensive, process-oriented manufacturing and assembly. And there are several Asian economies that are classic cases of this kind of growth strategy. It doesn't last forever. But what happens is that, you know, that, the, that new sector tends to be urban. It's much higher productivity on average than the traditional sectors because of the excess uh, you know, people in that sector, and those people start to move. Um, and when they cross that boundary, then their productivity grows and the economy grows. Um, Lewis was actually worried um, about the fact that as long as there's this surplus labor sitting there, you know, that would really like to have your job, if you're in the modern urban export sector, the wages won't rise very fast, even though the productivity is growing. And, um, and that's right. There's a, a, a concern about the distributional aspects of the growth patterns associated with that. And we, you know, I think people in the developing world and the people who study it understand all this. You know, it's not a new insight, but it did come from Arthur Lewis. And the, and the, but the main point um, that I wanted to make is the one Lewis made, which is this: this model doesn't go on forever, and it sort of stops when there isn't any more surplus labor. <laughs> in the traditional sectors, including agriculture. And then you start to see a different growth pattern in which you basically have to you know, drive the productivity uh, and growth of the economy through innovation and productivity rises in all, these, all the sectors of the economy. And that transition, uh, which is pretty dramatic in, uh, in a developing country's growth story, is, is called the Lewis turning point. Right. It's the it's the point where you don't you're not building the growth strategy or the growth dynamics on this bringing in uh, underemployed productive resources. But he was thinking labor um, and and the Chinese talk about this all the time and try to date the Lewis turning point because the Chinese are well past the Lewis turning point at this point, uh, you know, even though it's still. There's still lots of people who aren't yet in the urban sectors. I mean, you don't have to take everybody out of the agricultural sector to make this happen. And what occurred to me, you know, to go back to the kind of configuration of the global economy, is that we had a long period of a kind of deflationary forces operating because we kept bringing more and more productive capacity into the global economy. Initially, as the early high growth countries came in, and then the very big players, you know, like China, and to some extent India, although they have a slightly different growth model, and and so we kind of just lived with that, and it contributed to, you know, absence of inflation in the tradable sector, but that created excess, you know, capacity in developed economies that spilled over into the other thing. We got essentially a deflationary pattern. I mean. I don't mean to, to say that's the whole story, but it was a pretty important part of the story for a subset of, uh, of things that we consume. Uh, we basically, you know, didn't have any supply side, you know, constraints. Uh, we just kept bringing excess capacity in. And so what I was trying to suggest is that, you know, the, the demand side, because of the emerging markets, middle income classes has got so big and the residual with, you know, capacity to sort of supply that increasingly rapidly growing demand is probably um, near, near a point that will look like, from a global point of view, like the Lewis turning point. And if that's true, then the implication is that the supply side constraints will be more significant. Um, the growth model, you know, to the extent it works, will have to rely on productivity growth kind of all over the place and not just, you know, locating under underutilized resources. Um, the inflationary pressures will probably be more significant. 
um, than they have been even when we get rid of bottlenecks and other things that, uh, that are known parts of the current pattern, including perhaps delayed, uh, delayed monetary responses and so on. Uh, but anyway, so that's the idea. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's a different world. It's a, a different world inflation. It's a different world monetary policy. It's a different world um, in terms of the relative prices of various kinds of assets as well. Yeah, I've seen, uh, for instance, scholars like Peter Temin in his book, The Vanishing Middle Class, <clears throat> picked up a portion of this dynamic that you refer to in the developed countries, whereby uh, the pressure on both profits and wages in the manufacturing sector led to a migration to low margin services where people who needed employment could get employment, but it was almost like uh, Arthur Lewis in reverse uh, yeah. from the standpoint of large segments of the population and that's fed some of the political disgruntled or discord that uh, has been evident whether it's the AFD, Marie Le Pen, the Brexit community, or, or Trumpian America. We've seen uh, some some kinds of pressures like that. No, I, I think Peter is, is right, and that is well understood. And then you had the additional arrival in the kind of, you know, say starting 1980s on, um, of you know automation in the form you know addressing routine jobs many of which were middle class so when you combine those two effects the globalization effect and the uh, and the digital you know tech, the automation of of what uh, MIT folks call routine jobs then you got you you did have a very powerful distributional kind of effect structural and distributional effect on the developed economies yeah. And as Timon talked about in his book, uh, there was a, how do I say, perhaps a missed opportunity in invigorating education as a transformational device in the developed countries, that the broad base access to education, including learning to work with the digital technologies, uh, was in some sense stifled by budget austerity. At some sense, in, in this Timon writes about quite vehemently, the hostility of what I'll call racial animosity picks up at times of distress and austerity. And then that broke us into small little pieces of community that, how would I say, stopped us from creating a coherent ladder up to the value added of high margin services through education. I once heard Temin give a talk citing W. Arthur Lewis and the move from the farm to the city, and he said it's the move from low margin services through the education system to high margin services that we're missing out on. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, and by the way, that same movement is uh, in, an incredibly important part of the kind of growth dynamics in a middle-income country because they can't rely on the Lewis effect anymore. So they've got to upgrade the human capital that matches the upgrading of the value creation, you know, in the in the broader economy, M you know, manufacturing, tr yes, but also services, which are be, are are known to become an important part of the, an increasingly large fraction of any economy as its income grows. So, so absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I guess there's two ways to tackle a problem. You can either try to make the pie bigger so everybody somehow benefits from it, or if you fail to do that, then you have a, a sort of small or even shrinking or not growing fast enough pie and then the incentive structure becomes one of trying to get, you know, your appropriate share of it. And that's highly divisive, you know, economically and socially. Yeah. Uh, in my own visits in recent years, uh, 
I should say recent years before the pandemic locked me down, uh, in traveling around China, I could hear some of echoes that resonate with what you're talking about, the turning point. Many, many people talk to me that historically China educated what you might call an elite to run the state. But with the advent of digital technology, a broadening of the, and increasing the range of the population that would have access to higher education seemed imperative. That it, in, instead of a little group that ran everything for a subsistence agriculture economy, we needed for, for social coherence and stability and optimism, they needed to transform their education system so that people could assume different roles. And they, they really were very coherent. That's true in any economy. Once they get, you know, to these middle income levels, if you don't, don't invest in the human capital, however you do it, um, you just won't grow. Right. I mean, it's just a too important part of input. You just you, you can't have, you know, people whose education stopped at grade eight, you know, running a modern economy and you need and, and, and it's not just running it. I mean, you don't you know, having a highly educated elite in the capital city, let's call it Beijing, you know, doesn't help you. You know, if you if what you need is the human capital to run an increasingly sophisticated, high value added economy everywhere. Right. So they weren't the first to realize that. But, you know, it it's ab absolutely. Well, and the scope and scale just because of the size of that population makes it a, a very large endeavor. A country like Sweden can handle those transformations because of a, how do I say, a more concentrated and smaller population base that uh, uh, doesn't create all the challenges of diffusion of these education platforms to various different areas and, and regions and how would I say? No, that's know, a, that's factions right. within it, the politics. You mean China's impressive in terms of the growth story? I know there's a lot of antipathy now, but for for a couple of reasons, they, they, at least a part of their growth has occurred in a pretty tough global environment, you know, including recently. Second, it's so big, it's and heterogeneous. There's really kind of you know, as, as Takatoshi Ito once said, the way to think about China is it's about like seven different economies all, you know, under one roof <laughs> called a country. Um, and the third thing is a little country like Sweden, you know, can specialize in the tradable sector, but a big economy like China or the United States, for that matter, can't. Uh, you know, you have to. So you, the, the way in, in learning curve terms, you have to learn to do a tremendous number of things well uh, in order to to succeed with the growth and development process. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, go back to it. <clears throat> there was a time when you and I were at the China Development Forum, and after you left, I met with a very high-level Chinese official. And this individual, who I won't name, said, Robert, we are running into a very difficult period. We're entering between the United States and China. And he said... Uh, he had heard that I had given a speech in Mexico uh, at a INET-related conference that uh, said essentially people shouldn't be mad at the Mexicans in America, and that the the and this was early Trump administration. The development of hostility towards China and Mexico startled this man, but he said, what's bothering me is that we weren't the island of Tonga where you came in and towed us into the system. We had four times the population at the outset of the United States and one-fortieth of the per capita income. So integrating us was going to affect not only our 
upswing, but all kinds of adjustment required within the United States. And I, as a high-level government official in China, do not have the power to do the adjustment transformations in the United States. And now we are being demonized, meaning the Chinese, because the Americans went through the transition, cut taxes for the winners, let them keep their money offshore, and watched the despair of large segments of the population, particularly the industrial Midwest, and now they're cultivating hatred like we did that to them, rather than American leadership did that to you, because they didn't, to take the old adage, you can go with free trade, and make everyone better off and no one worse off. But it involves very, very significant transformative uh, subsidies or, or just transfers and investments in revitalizing those who are being displaced. And so I guess I'm, I'm, that's a prelude to asking you a question. At the Lewis Turning Point, maybe the game that spawned all the tension in the scar tissue isn't the cutting edge of going forward. It may be a painful historical chapter, but the new chapter is, some, is something different. And U.S.-China hostility may obstruct our vision of what we could do together. And obviously climate is one dimension of that. No, I think that's absolutely right, Rob. I mean, you know, there's unfortunately you know, failures in the past leave legacies and scars that uh, may make it difficult to find the right balance between strategic competition, which I think is inevitable, uh, and strategic cooperation in areas that really matter. Um, because, you know, in some sense, we poisoned the well, you know, on our side, we didn't adapt very well to the shifting global supply conditions. Then maybe we should have been somewhat less open. I mean, you know, lots of smart people go back and review these things. But, um, you know, on the Chinese side, I think, you know, they, especially as their income started to rise, this is kind of not the early state, you know, not, you know, not the first two decades of reform after 1980, but, you know, when they started to become big and powerful, some of the behaviors, um, you know, or economic policies that are kind of forgivable, you know, when you're small and doesn't really have a big impact, start to get annoying. Uh, things related to intellectual property or, you know, not really paying attention to the relationship between your own structure with state-owned enterprises and the kind of existing global rules-oriented system and whatnot. And so there was probably inattention to the I think China thought of itself as a little developing country for too long and the Americans didn't take seriously the kind of magnitude of the impact and others uh, but but I think you're right I mean one of the implications of what I said before if it's if it's accurate is uh, is that that's not going to be the main event going forward um, you know the main event I think is probably going to be the digital transformation uh, because it, it has the potential, it has, you know, worrying distributional characteristics if not managed properly in the ways you just described, including education, uh, but it has huge potential for inclusive growth patterns and productivity growth. And in a, a world that's aging, you know, and facing more supply constraints that, you know, it hasn't faced in decades, uh, you know, a productivity spurt would be pretty beneficial. Uh, so when I start to think about the future, my thoughts start to to shift to well, what is it? What is it that's kind of in process that has great potential that really significantly modifies, you know, aging, the shifting kind of supply conditions in the global economy, enables to some extent the energy transformation, etc. You know, it's not the whole story, but I keep coming back to the potential, multi-dimensional potential of the digital revolution. Mm -hmm. Let me, uh, I want to come back to that in some depth, but you mentioned 
aging. I know you're on the academic advisory to the Luhan Academy, and last week I attended, uh, I guess, a half to two-thirds day conference on aging in the world economy, which I thought was a marvelous characterization. First, data-intensive, so you could see what was happening in the different regions of the world, and second, explorations of all kinds of dilemmas. If you have a big base that's retired, you have a fiscal burden, and as demographic growth slows down, you have a smaller working force taking care of a larger retired group. There was question of how to augment the productivity, particularly in the context of a digital transformation, so the elders can work productively longer, which lowers that burden but may add to competition in the labor force. I just thought it was a marvelous event exploring all of these elements and trade-offs uh, region by region. There was a beautiful presentation on Singapore and all the policies that they're undertaking. But I, and I, and I do think what I'll call uh, caring for people as they age is very important to the quality of life the kind of fear people are asked to live with throughout their life because they dread being what you might call barren in terms of resources at a time when their productivity is diminished. There are, there are wonderful books by people like the Jungian therapist uh, Connie Zweig, The Inner Work of Age, From Role to Soul is the title of the book, which talks about all of the ways in which we conjure up the fear of aging or, or that you are somehow diminished rather than what you might call celebrated for long service where you've contributed to society. But I, I thought this Luhan event was extraordinary because it was thorough and deep, well-conceived across the different challenges all in one day all over the world. And... Uh, that's so, impressive. I, I unfortunately got caught with not being able to be there because of being in meetings, but, uh, but I'll be sure to listen to the, uh, to the, you know, the, uh, I'm sure they have a recording of it that you can access. I, I, I believe so. Yes. I'll, I'll try to find that link for not only for you, but for our listeners and, uh, and put it on the website with this, with this podcast. So when coming back to the digital you, uh, I couldn't imagine how elders become more comfortable. I, ha I have a seventh grade, almost 13 year old daughter who, as a result of the pandemic, has gone way behind this MIT graduate in electrical and computer sciences skills in this realm already. <laughs> uh, but how can how can elders adapt and improve their you know comfort confidence productivity range of things they can undertake i think is an important challenge and no, then i, I guess the other dimension yeah is how do we continue the development prospect I, i'm thinking of places like india i'm thinking of the conversation you and montek singh alawali and i have had I just made a podcast with A.J. Shibber, and I also think about African development and some of the good news rather than what you might call the East Asian model is dead, climate's going to devastate the subsistence agriculture, and you've got an enormous bulge of population growth. How does technology come to the rescue for elders, Africans, and Indians in your mind? Well, that, that, I, that I think has a sort of complicated sort of picture to dissect. But, um, you know, if I could step back for a minute, I, I think, you know, this, this episode of aging really requires a kind of multidimensional response. And one of them has to do with policy. I mean, I, th I think the underfunding of... Uh, 
pensions and social security systems is a, a terrible idea. Uh, and, and we haven't paid anywhere near enough attention. I don't mean there isn't scholarly work on this, but it isn't really had the kind of policy impact that you'd like to see on incentives, right? I mean, these systems, you know, create incentive structures that cause um, very difficult, you know, trajectories, you know, with unfunded pension, you know, unfunded liabilities of a whole variety of kinds that, you know, eventually have to be broken, promises broken and stuff. So I really think, you know, at a kind of very basic level, um, you know, we just have to kind of, I mean, and we've dug ourselves in many dimensions into a pretty big hole. So, you know, one way to get out of it is growth, <laughs> but that's the usual way to get, to get rid of, you know, liability overhangs. But so I think, you know, in, when you get past that, you sort of kind of fix, you have a kind of clear-eyed view of social security, to use the American term, uh, broadly speaking. Uh, and have something that looks vaguely sensible, it's clear. It doesn't have to be the same in every country. You know, that Singapore does not, basically expects people to, to save for retirement, right? There's some social insurance built into that system, but, but they, they don't sort of tell people, well, you know, you don't really have to know where it's coming from. You know, this <laughs> retire will be, be taken care of because we have a system for it. They say, you're gonna have to save for retirement. We'll subsidize your education, and the education's excellent. We'll subsidize your housing, you know, depending on where you are in the income spectrum. But, you know, you better, regardless of where you are in the income spectrum, you need to think about this, and, um, and you need to uh, plan. Um, and then I think the third leg of the stool that I see is y y you need institutional systems that help people, you know, make transitions. And, you know, and, and, and one of those transitions is staying in the workforce in a way that makes sense. You know, you have the right skills. Probably there's a lot of things in the digital world that you can do, um, even if you can't do some of the more onerous physical things. Uh, but you need it's a little hard to imagine individuals just pulling that, that off by themselves. They do have to invest their time and their energy and even their resources in getting it done. But you need an institutional complement to that to make it work. So I think that, that part's right. Um, and that's part of, you know, a good digital transformation, regardless of which part of the population you're talking about. Uh, but it surely should include, include the elderly. And yes, I, I mean, I agree with you and others that, um, that not having a rigid view about when you retire is a good sort of mindset starting place um, to, to get to get at this. I I think it should be optional. I mean, you know, I don't think it it has to be a social decision. You know, that tells people when they retire. I think some see people, you know, will probably <clears throat> save a lot, earn a lot, and retire when they're fifty-five and be cheerfully happy about it. And other people you know, perhaps with less resources may decide either because they love work or because they need to for financial reasons to kind of keep working. But I don't, the way I think about human beings is there isn't one side fits all and the good, a good system is one that allows people to make the appropriate choices given their preferences and gives them a kind of uh, support mechanism so they can actually implement those choices. How do you see the, uh, how would I say, demographically young African population, which is growing in numbers? International Office of Migration projects 2075, absent of major war, a population of almost 5 billion people. Their average age is quite a bit younger than places like the United States or Western Europe. The digital age is upon us, but I would imagine <clears throat> almost anywhere, part of what facilitates the digital age is to have what you might call public goods platforms built, which create these networks and the access to digital channels of communication and learning and all kinds of things. 
what what do you see as the which you might call the the possibility the exciting possibility for African development that technology can offer? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with you know um, it was, so the, the the challenge I think just so you know your listeners are clear is that the automation in things like manufacturing and logistics will decrease the power of the of the labor intensive you know growth model that Lewis talked about that you can see in in the development of many now middle and even high income countries. Uh, and if that's true, then they, you know, then then you need a different sort of growth strategy. Uh, it means it means a lot of things. I, I, it's probably not the right place to catalog them. It means some localization of manufacturing because you're not dependent on going and finding low cost labor. Uh, it means there's less labor in in the manufacturing and logistics systems. Um, and then when you sort of ask yourself the and, and you're going to have a service economy. Uh, in earlier than your predecessors had it, I guess is the way I would say it. Um, so what you what you want to do in that world is then at you know take advantage of the tools that you have available. So that one critical thing, if you want to build a kind of you know relatively modern kind of digital economy, is you need the infrastructure. That's especially you need the mobile internet. That works fast enough. I mean, and you can see transformative changes. I mean, the mobile internet in India is not new, but it used to be uh, 2G, 3G, uh, and the most expensive data rates in the world. Uh, and then, you know, Reliance Industries entered with this geo strategy. Which we don't have to spend an amount of time, but people know about that. It was transformational. You know, it added, you know, 400 to 500 million new subscribers in India, you know, taking the numbers way, way up. And the data rates, you know, dropped from the highest in the world to among the lowest. Uh, and now and now what you see is this incredibly dynamic, you know, sort of digital economy being built, you know, in education, in health, you know, in uh, e-commerce, in fintech, you know. And so on. It doesn't necessarily employ everybody that you want to employ, but it's certainly an important. And the hope, Rob, what makes the Indian story really quite interesting is, for the most part, you would expect this kind of transformative change, which occurred incredibly suddenly in India. I mean, you know, in 2016, they were behind the curve, and by 2020, you know, they're not. <laughs> Um, you expect the government, you need public sector investment to do it. The India story is interesting because it really wasn't a public investment story. It was a very clever strategy story by a company that had the resources to pull it off because it was, you know, uh, Reliance is an energy company by origin. Uh, and so I don't know how it'll work, but I mean, so that's an important piece of the puzzle. Then, then I think you have a vibrant, you know, sort of... Uh, economy the the big question is what most of us who have thought about developing country growth realize that you know it's hard to have a powerful growth engine that depends only on domestic demand right because domestic demand is constrained by income levels and its composition is constrained by income levels so this constraint gets relaxed as you grow but the the power of the labor-intensive model was it connected you to the global economy and so that the demand side constraints kind of all went away <laughs> you know what I mean and then you grew at incredibly high rates and that generated income that poured back into the economy and domestic demand started to get more interesting so so I think the unanswered question is over time can we build a digital economy that is to some extent global you know, so the, you know, on digital platforms, you not only can buy and sell stuff, you know, country within the country, uh, think of e-commerce or fintech, but that you can start to do, think of doing that on a global basis. If if that happens, then then you've got a system in which you know you you have a different growth model, but you but you 
you don't try to run it without having this very large thing called global demand available to you that allows specialization and whatnot. So, so we've seen some of that already. India had a period where they had significant growth in business process outsourcing and servicing and so on. Um, it's still important. Uh, and other countries have followed suit, you know, Philippines and so on. So that's a kind of global internet-enabled service industry. But if we get more of that, then that could generate really powerful growth engines. You know, and countries will specialize in various parts of it and so on, and we'll see, you know, an altered version of the model we understand uh, that leverages the global economy to promote development. So I think if you imagine going through that kind of world, the way it's going to be enabled is significantly on, on digital platforms and infrastructure and technologies. Going back to echoes from my meetings in China, I always heard from Chinese officials say, as things like the movie, uh, The Social Dilemma came out on Netflix, see, we told you, cybersecurity is intertwined with, with e-commerce platforms. The e-commerce services are great, but when the consumer becomes the product that is sold, meaning the big aggregated database, and or it becomes, which you might call a window into national intelligence and invasion of privacy, how can we, and this was the Chinese talking, how can we work with the American platform companies and protect the privacy of our population? And, and I, you can reverse the arrows, it can go the other way. But I, th I thought it was very interesting how anxious Chinese leadership was about having what you might call American-based foreign direct investment in those platforms. And I think as you were talking about the, the evolution of U.S.-China relations, we went through a period where it looked like China was going to tap in and join the American-led global system around the time of the China 2025 plan, where the knowledge intensive areas, the places that you would have said were the comparative advantage of the United States or Germany or whatever, were the places they started to want to replicate because they want to move up into the high value added front row. But I, so I think the, I think, I guess I'm coming back to all of these possibilities in these networks of, and integration creates an economic efficiency. But there's this other echo that's going on with which you might call privacy and ethics related to these systems and the side effects that people are increasingly haunted by. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, these, um, you know, spillover effects, you know, uh, that have to do with security or data or privacy or you know, control uh, in the case of, you know, content, what people hear or learn about or see, yeah, they, 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 they're uh, incredibly important. And so far, at least vis-a-vis -vis China, they're producing a kind of barrier. I mean, they're, they're, their mega platforms are marginally here uh, or in the Western world. Uh, our, our mega platforms are basically not there at all, they're blocked. Uh, and it hasn't been completely shut, you know, there's a, a growing sense, not just in China and the United States, that that we, there's gonna be a requirement that you physically maintain the data physically in within the country. Um, and that creates all kinds of problems for data flows, uh, you know, especially when they have to do with people across boundaries, which has further implications for how kind of international commerce is, you know, or finance is conducted and all kinds of things. So, I mean, this is a journey that we're on, but right now, you know, the practical, simple truth, I mean, it's just simply unrealistic um, to imagine that we're going to go back to a kind of, kind of totally open, digitally enabled global, you know, economic and financial system. It's just not going to happen. Uh, the internet's going to be regulated in multiple dimensions for, you know, competition, 
data management, data location, security provisions, who has access to the data. And we're, we're not going to trust the other guys to do it, and we're not going to come out at the same place. At least I doubt it. You know, is America going to come to a, you know, some kind of equilibrium in managing the digital economy that looks like the China one? I, it's possible, but I don't think so. There'll be some elements of similarity, but I don't think Americans have the same degree of uh, willingness to have the government have access to essentially all personal data um, that characterizes the Chinese system. So, uh, I think to go back to what you were kind of hinting at, or maybe more than hinting at, this kind of fragmentation and balkanization is not, which seems inevitable, is not encouraging with respect to kind of open access to a kind of global economy and financial, a digitally enabled global economy and financial system. So, but or to put it differently, if, if these kinds of constraints, you know, driven by different values and governance systems and so on, you know, continue to become a more important part of the landscape, a ancillary casualty of that might be the kind of openness you need to, to maximize the opportunity set for lower income developing countries. I had a uh, recent board meeting at INET and one of my board members sent me a book, which is a science fiction novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry of the Future. And the individual who sent me the book with the, the note that was in the package said something to the effect of, Kim Stanley Robinson is making the point that unless we have a global collaborative government, we will never succeed in the realm of climate change and life on Earth will be widely endangered. How do we, how do you see where we are in the realm of climate change and transformation and obviously, which you might call carbon burning in Africa affects all of us or in India affects all of us, the high carbon burning in the United States, which has a lot of political economic power in the fossil fuel industry, both both coal and oil related. I can see lots of people fearful of all the resistances, and I'm seeing it more difficult to imagine collaboration. But I also see it, a la this science fiction writer, it, it may be a necessary condition that we overcome our fears and our resistances to get there. Yeah, so, I mean, these are really serious questions. I I mean, and nobody has an answer. So I, you can't, a betting person can't reject the odds that we'll fail to get this done and pay the consequences, <laughs> meaning our children and grandchildren. Um, I, you know, I, I just, unfortunately, that's the reality. Um, I, Rob, let me, let me just say a couple of things about it. First of all, I, you know, the vast majority of the emissions come from the six largest emitters in the world. You know, if you take North America, <coughs> even ex-Mexico, China, India, Japan, Europe, taken as a whole, and so on. You've got, you know, probably upwards to 75% of global emissions. This is a little bit like the aging, you know, calculation. I can imagine as things get more severe and serious, you know, and it's kind of in our face, you know, as it, as it is trending to be, you know, with the frequency, severity, and global coverage of, you know, climate-related disasters of a variety of kinds, uh, that, you know, if those players come together, you know, with the pressure of their own population saying, you know, enough fooling around, I can imagine a cobbled together governance structure could be created that A, made major progress and kind of disciplined everybody else, right? I mean, if you've got 75% of the global economy, you know, and, and a degree of cohesiveness because of the severity of the, of the challenge, 
then then you can run a system. You, I mean, it won't be democratic. The, the, those entities will make up the rules, and anybody who doesn't play by them, you know, is going to have to live with the consequences. You know, so it'll be a little bit like the global economy run by the G7, you know, for a lot of years after World War II. But that's how you get stuff done, right? And and these players have the clout. They have the technology, uh, and lots. There's lots of activity and excitement investment in that area. They have the policy weapons and tools if they choose to use them. You know, things like pricing, climate, you know, carbon properly. Uh, Etc. Subsidizing, you know, I don't like the term moonshots, you know, when you really need big technology breakthroughs and so on. So I, I guess if I had to kind of, you know, give you my most optimistic kind of guess at this, it's things will get worse before they get better. But when they get worse, you know, the groundswell of support or pressure, you know, for major countries to get together and say, look, enough. You know, we've we've already delayed past the point of of any ideal kind of you know reaction function, uh, but now we have to deal with this. And um, and th then I think what I just described you know could happen. But it but it the ma I mean the argument is uh, the consequences of failing. You have to be kind of right in your face. Yeah. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, is the old phrase. Uh, I, I guess that's the right way to say Well, Mike, I, one of the things I wanted to underscore in having you on again as a guest is for our young scholars. The In this tumultuous, frightening world, I see you as an example of one of the people who may, who is almost what you might call a unrelenting in your constructive energy. You don't seem to get despondent, bitter, etc. You keep pushing forward. And I'm not talking about fantasy. I'm talking about looking at things carefully, looking at the trade-offs. And yet I hear a lot of experts today, and this is what I want to, the topic I want to broach, who say there have been times when humankind had a vision of what the common good was, meaning the ends. We might differ on the means, market, state, different policies, but we had a sense of what the destination should look like. A lot of experts now feel as though the, what you might call trust and faith and reliance upon expertise is quite diminished, perhaps in relation to the rawness of social media discourse but but the but the the intellectuals that i know that are despairing are not so much despairing about their influence it's that they don't see with different models of the means a common perspective on the ends meaning what is a good life what is it we're trying to build and that I'm just curious how you're perceiving that, because as I've said at the beginning of this little sermon, I see you as one of the most constructive and thoughtful people that I've ever encountered. And when you go into yourself, how are you seeing that, that challenge and the role of expertise at this juncture? Well, I guess the way I think about it, Rob, is... You know, I look out at the world and while we have lots of problems and challenges, I keep seeing wonderful people in all walks of life doing incredible things. You know, some of them are, you know, creating new things. Some of them are looking after people. Um, some of them are community organizing and so on. And I think, you know, it, it really is true that there's a bunch of, you know, people who have at a kind of deep level the same core values. They want their fellow human beings to thrive and to be protected if they're vulnerable and so on. I think you see an example of this now in the Ukrainian situation. There's an extraordinary, I mean, you know, it's a very hard thing to navigate. Nobody wants to go to war, but, you know, the extraordinary amount of activity associated with trying to help these 
thus far two million people who have left the Ukraine. So I, so I think, and and every time I experience, you know, or watch people get together, even people who sort of seem to be highly divided, you know, they, this kind of common humanity, kind of comes together. Uh, so then I sort of think to myself, well, you know, well, so what are the impediments? You mentioned one. I mean, I I don't know what's going to happen in Russia when the young soldiers go back until the, the rest of the their families and whatnot, what's, what was going on in the Ukraine. I mean, you know, there's rigid control over the story that's being told there. But, you know, if they go back and say, you know, let me tell you... <laughs> This is what we what we were doing and what was happening in Ukraine, you know. Are the is the other are the other people going to say, well, that's not what it says on you know the social media, so I don't believe you. I mean, it's just hard for me to imagine that. Um, so 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 I think at some deep level, people you know have do share some kind of common humanity, and when that doesn't sort of materialize, it's because they're too far away from each other and divided you know, by the media and other things. Um, but that keeps me kind of optimistic. I just think, uh, in spite of the enormous challenges, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's easy to get depressed, Rob. I mean, that surveys that, you know, Dave Brady and Doug Rivers and others do of the trust in institutions all over the world, right. the Pew Foundation, and, um, you know, it's pretty Richard depressing. Richard Edelman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean... It's pretty, it's pretty discouraging. So you, you sort of get the feeling that we either dug a barely big hole that's going to get out, hard to get out of or, um, or it's a pretty big mountain to climb. But anyway, the, the bottom line is, I, you know, I, I still think that it's possible to do this. Um, most of the people I know in one way or another, you know, want to be constructive. And when they get frustrated, you know, Americans get frustrated because our ability to come together in terms of governance and sort of focusing on, you know, what really matters seems to be impaired at the moment. And people say, well, when are we going to get past this? You know, when are we going to start acting like, you know, everybody in the country is important and we have to listen to each other and compromise and do all the other things that are part of life? I mean, I can't tell you, you know, I'm absolutely sure we'll get there because it's been a long, dry period for a while now. Um, so I can't justify optimism, you know, on a rational basis when it comes to sort of institutional responses to things, but, I, but I'm always encouraged when I interact with my colleagues, with individual people, um, because they share the same core values. Yeah, that good-heartedness comes through uh, despite what you might call the anxiety and fear that people are having to cope with at this juncture. Well, I think that, how would I say, Mike, I, like I said, I see you as an example of someone that's always walking forward and always carrying like a, 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 a very, I'm going to call it self-discipline of a rigorous examination of what's happening. You're not looking for a fantasy to anesthetize your concerns, you're looking at the world and looking at the possibilities and the trade-offs, some of which are daunting and some of which are inspiring. And, uh, and, and that mode is what I am trying to underscore here as we're approaching the end of this talk, because that's what I would ask my young scholars to study and emulate. Yeah, I think you're right, Rob. I mean, I, I could say the same thing about you. I think you approach things with an enormously broad-based understanding of things that go well beyond economics, and and it's always constructive. Right? You're not trying to tear things down. You're not trying to vilify them. You're not. Um, you're willing to call things that are just plain bad, bad, for sure, um, but you're always trying to move things forward. So I'm happy to be the kind of part-time partner of yours in that. Well, I would say the, that feeling is more than mutual. I think I'm the lucky one. So, uh, but at any rate, thank you for going on tour with me today at this juncture. I think there's a lot to build. I know 
Our Commission on Global Economic Transformation coming out of the pandemic has a lot of work to do to illuminate, and I think there's a, there's a world that's very curious for what a constellation of experts uh, who've been shaken up by events, whether it's Ukraine or, or pandemic or, or other dimensions, uh, I, I think it's, it's high time for us to, to deliver. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Thank you. You tend to get Thank up in the morning your and you ask yourself the question, you know, so what, what else, what, what's the next train wreck, right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Yeah, well, where's the next train wreck and where's the next picnic? Both. <laughs> we got to find those. We got to find those. Good. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Thank you Rob. We'll talk again Thank soon. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing